when people tell you an idea is so stupid and is so impossible to achieve, it just means what you're doing is really, really right because A, it puts a great mode around your business and it's something that's not easily re replaceable and repeatable. So. Young Professionals in Energy podcast. I'm Mark Heinemann, and I'm joined today with a co-host and a guest, uh, two of my good friends. I'm very excited to chat with them. Uh, introducing the co-host first, his name's Mike Sachs. Uh, he's works for a mineral, public mineral company. Um, Mike, do you want to give just a little background for yourself, and then we can introduce our guest? Yeah, sure. Hi, everyone. My name's Mike Sachs. Uh, I studied chemical engineering, and now I'm a reservoir engineer at Sitio Royalties. Um, I've been in the oil and gas space for nearly 10 years. Um, Mark and I go back pretty much to year one, so I'm super happy to be here. <laughs> super happy to have you. It's going to be really fun uh, talking to our guest today with you. Um, and our guest is Jeremy Gottlieb, uh, the, 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 my, the man, the myth, the legend with uh, Combo Curve. So uh, Mike and I are both big evangelists with Combo Curve and Jeremy's technology, and we've been super impressed with uh, the system and team that he's built. And so fun to have him on the podcast to talk about um, his background and the company and, and what they've done. So Jeremy, you want to introduce yourself a little bit for the audience? Sure. Thanks guys for having me on the show. I'm super pumped to be here and as always really love working with you and your teams. Um, so yeah, I'm Jeremy. Uh, I'm one of the co-founders of Combo Curve. I, I do a little bit of everything over there and I've been doing that since uh joined the group in January 2018 to start the capital race and um it's been blowing and going ever since. Fantastic. Well before we dive into uh come curve and the kind of your tale there, we do like to normalize it for our audience to let them know uh who the person is that we're talking to, where they came from and kind of how they got to their current positions. So take us back. Where uh where'd you go to school? What what kind of jobs have you had so far? Yeah, walk us through it. Sure. So it all started from college uh, at UT, so uh, stayed in Austin for, for four years, did a bachelor's and master's in uh, accounting and finance, and after school went into uh, the transaction group at EY, so I was there for several years, and then I started working at a hedge fund um, after EY, after I finished up my CFA charter. And then after that, uh, rolled into the actual oil and gas upstream, so everything I did in EY and at the hedge fund was oil and gas related. So a lot of transactional work and uh, working on investing in oil and gas equities. Um, and and then, EY is uh, Ernst, Ernst, Ernst & Young, right? Not exactly. EY Yep. Yep. EY, Ernst & Young. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, everything had been upstream and never saw it from the operator side. So I decided to jump into oil and gas operator, uh, Deep Gulf Energy, um, uh, there, I led the finance team for seven years. We exited the Cosmos Energy uh, in 2018, and that was an opportunity to take a lot of experience that I had from both the consulting and transactional days and investing days uh, to go ahead and, and do something new and unique. So that it was really a lot of education up until that point and really get, put me in a good position to go ahead and do something new. So, Jeremy, why? Uh why go into the entrepreneurial side of things after this experience? What made you want to start something? Like, when did you get the itch for entrepreneurship? 
sure. So I, I always knew I wanted to do something different. And, you know, a lot of the things in oil and gas where you have to really learn to be creative and there's a lot of different risks that you get to take. It's, it's always something I wanted to do on my own, whether it was oil or gas or software. I kind of got uh, thrown into the software a little bit by accident because I met Armand through a mutual friend. Um, and so met him in December 17. I knew I wanted to work on something that would be impactful uh, to our industry and uh, saw the project. And we we're I was fortunate enough to meet the Rice guys in January 18. So I met Danny and kind of kept in touch with him over the over the uh, next few months. And uh, by that time in July 2018, we had gotten the funding. But I've always wanted to do something that was large and impactful. And, you know, there are very rare occasions when you have an opportunity to go ahead and take time uh, out of your, you know, out of the normal grind of working a, a normal job to to go ahead and take some big risks. And my wife was super supportive because, you know, it's you only get older over time. So she said, if you don't do it now, you're never going to do it. So she pushed me really hard um, to go ahead and, and jump out. But it's just something I've always wanted to do and also uh, love controlling my own destiny in some sense or form. Right. So it's up to you to be successful if you're successful you know, you can you can take as much on as you want. And uh, if you fail, it's 100 percent on your shoulders and nobody else's. And I love I love having that weight on the shoulders at times to really uh, do some very large things. So it's just awesome. uh, something I've been wanting to do forever. Had, had you had previous experience with kind of the fine curves and reservoir analysis and deal making before you jumped into uh, a software that focuses on that? Basically, have you ever seen or heard about Harry's beforehand? <laughs> <laughs> so at Deep Gulf Energy, we worked with a PhD win, and that was um, it was it was definitely a challenge, uh, potentially the bane of my existence, because I would bother people at 8 p.m. at night uh, for PhD win runs, and you know I'm like, why can't I just run this and do it on my own and be empowered and not bother other people? I just wanted a price deck change, and I'm asking somebody at 8 p.m. on Saturday for a run, and I felt so guilty doing that. Um, and so when I, you know, so I knew about PhD Win. Um, I spent a tremendous amount of time with uh, operations engineers, reservoir engineers. Probably sat behind their desks for a lot longer than they ever wanted to, but. Because I owned the model at our company, I wanted to understand every moving piece that went into it. So I took a tremendous amount of pride understanding a lot more about reservoir, water drive reservoirs versus depletion drive reservoirs. I can I can keep the conversation going for a little bit and get into the piece of G and piece of S risk with any geologist you want to talk to and understand uh, a lot about asphaltines that I really prefer not to sometimes from uh, from back in our deep water offshore days. Um, but yeah, a tremendous amount of interest um, and also a lot of experience with PhD win uh, from the deep Gulf energy side. Yeah. So you're, yeah, you're forecasting working in the business and uh, understood the niche and the market demand, I, I suppose. Um, so tell us, give us kind of a broad overview of combo curve. What, what is it? Sure. It's uh, it's basically an energy. We've moved now to the energy operating system, but we started res reserves and economics. Um, and so, you know, the Aries PG wind replacement, integrating uh, automated forecasting, type curve scheduling, and all your economics uh, integrated into a one platform. And we've expanded 
uh, recently into GHG, which we released, and then we're also going into scheduling. So uh, a lot GHG, more you greenhouse know, gas. Yep, green, greenhouse gas uh, modeling. So we've already released that for several clients. Um, it's commercialized already, and it's going to be fully uh, released in the next few weeks in terms of releasing it to the broad-based client base that we have. Uh, we we released it to our development partners already. Um, so that's really exciting. And then we're releasing more scheduling, modeling around constraints and, uh, and a bunch of other features. So that's uh, that's also kind of in the milestones as well. That's coming up over the next month, uh, few months. So really exciting. We started with kind of a core problem uh, and then have really expanded upon that to encompass a lot more than just reserves and economics. Just jumping in on the product side of things, like, do you see yourself expanding this beyond scheduling? You said you have some emissions modeling that could really roll over, I think, into maybe the carbon credits market. Do you see mm-hmm. yourself kind of dipping into that or maybe some of the alternatives? Mm-hmm. It's definitely things that we're exploring right now and we're trying to get a better assessment of what we think is um, real from a long term business perspective versus what's kind of transitory in nature from just, uh, you know, oh, this is really interesting. Um, we, you know, the businesses that we like are ones that are enduring businesses and um, certain markets may just be, you know, a temporary, a temporary, uh, you know, hype. Uh, we don't want to do something where, where, you know, invest a lot of money in a few years from now. It's not something that's important to the broader market. So we spend a lot of time researching, but you're 100 percent right in terms of what we're looking at doing and expanding uh, what we're learning right now. Um, and it's just attacking the real problems that uh, energy companies have because we've seen them really expand beyond just oil and gas. A lot more recently, you see a lot of press releases around there. Yeah, that's fantastic. I'm going to zoom in a little bit on kind of the problem, the first problem that you guys solved. And I think I'll frame this up um, by asking Mike a question, actually. Mike, when I think about you know new petroleum engineers or people entering the industry, like if I entered in 2020, 2021, and our company used combo curve, then my attitude would be like, oh, of course this software exists. You know, of course someone like built this tool and it's it's pretty good. You know, and you'd have your own growing pains. But Mike, do you want to comment a little bit about for listeners that may not be familiar with like just how horrendous it is to use Aries and PhD Win? <laughs> yeah, I mean, even PEEP, like I've never used PhD Win, but I used to use PEEP a little bit and uh, yeah. Aries a lot. And uh, I mean, just to ground everyone, Aries is basically a DOS-based software that's been like database front-end database management <laughs> software. Yeah, yeah, and it's like the the company has reluctantly upgraded the system, and is I think has really held back the industry a lot. Um, <laughs> And even today, like they reluctantly release updates. So you, you get into it, it's very slow. It's not easy to follow. It's not easy to understand how to code what you want to code. But the real time consuming thing is doing manual forecasting on every single well. And like obviously in the 80s, technology wasn't what it was. And that's kind of when Aries kind of came to be. And now that we're in the 2020s, why didn't someone do what Jeremy and Combo Curve are doing sooner? I don't know. The technology was there. They were just the brilliant, ambitious people <laughs> that got it done. And I love it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll be fanboys on this it's, on this interview. So. It's, yeah. <laughs> no, I appreciate it. Well, I mean, the reason why no one did it is because 
they told everybody else how stupid they were. Literally, I had people telling me, you're the dumbest person in the world for doing this idea. Investors were telling us, you guys cannot beat a 40-year-old entrenched software. It's not possible. You guys aren't going to do it. And we said, well, you know, our mom's like, I'm not learning Aries. He, when, he, when he was at Equinor, he said, I refuse to learn how to use this software. I'm going to build something to kill it because I refuse to do it. And so, you know, it's when people tell you an idea is so stupid and is so impossible to achieve, it just means what you're doing is really, really right because A, it puts a great mode around your business and it's something that's not easily re- replaceable and repeatable. So it took a lot of time and you have to have the right investor. So a lot of investors want to see immediate success, right? You have you get six months of runway and you got to go ahead and get to market, start selling. And and so for us, we had the luxury of working with really great people. The Rice guys gave us a lot of opportunity to develop the software properly and get everything in place in order to go ahead and execute. So we had a luxury of having the right investor that understood that this vision is a tremendous amount of lifting to get there. But they said, take your time, do it right, make sure you get everything in place so you really can go ahead and hit the ground running. So. Most people don't see that, and the Rice guys have a really long-term vision in terms of investment, and that really helped us out. So we had the right investor that had the right experience, that understood the problem, that um, was patient, and gave us an opportunity to really execute and develop properly before hitting the market. So it's a luxury, it's a rarity to come by, but we, you know, you come to value those relationships. And then we've brought on two other great investors and several other smaller investors that are just super, super supportive. They understand what we're trying to do and accomplish, and they have a long-term vision and view of what the company is going to look like. So we're not necessarily focused on the next six or 12 months, but we're focused on what we're going to accomplish over the next two to five years. And what we can take over from a market perspective is just unbelievable. Uh, And we see a tremendous runway ahead of us. So everybody's really excited about the opportunity, but all of it started with having the right capital at the right time with the right team. It's very rare that those come together. And there's, of course, a lot of challenges along the way where you learn, you know, it's not like I built software before or Armand built software before. We had a lot of learning along the way and we've had a great team to help bolster us and make us better. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Well, you guys, you kind of answered my question how you came up with the idea. It was a niche or a market that hurts existing software that was terrible and thought hey we can do this better so a little bit of arrogance running into that but um we've chatted kind of about your startup journey before and i, I think it's fun but you guys were kind of really thrifty with uh your your initial capital right i mean kind of bootstrapping this project um do you want to talk a little bit about that sure so i mean we definitely started leaner you know a lot of uh early stage companies they pull you know potentially five or ten million seed rounds and get running our project was was bootstrapped on a lot less than that. We we still had a good amount of capital, but we were pretty lean in terms of what we were doing initially to to hit the ground running and and starting to execute. So um, every little dollar uh, mattered for us. We got our credits from Google and begged them from Microsoft and everybody. The first twelve months. Uh, we, when we uh, actually were in the process of trying to launch, we hadn't spent a dollar on any cloud cost because we were just running through our credits at that point in time. So it was being creative there and trying to 
to make sure we were super efficient. And we were able to accomplish, I mean, after we launched in May 2020, we were hyper efficient about how we scaled the business with just a few BD people. So it's been, you know, it's been it was a thrilling process. Um, but yeah, we definitely didn't start out the gate with just a tremendous amount of capital like we have right now after our Series B. It's it's a big luxury. So when you start really with the tight budget, you appreciate when you have a little bit luxury of extra extra room to go ahead and spend on marketing and, and uh, other other stuff that you normally don't have the, the dollars to spend on. Yeah. So I, I bet your family is pretty happy to be on real food and off the top ramen now. <laughs> um, but do you want to talk a little bit about how you were able to get your foot into selling the product with other companies? You had talked about how your investors, they obviously knew the energy space and knew that this was a great product, but you met so much resistance, presumably with industry people. Like, How were you able to change their minds? Yeah, that's a good question. So, I mean, Armand and I both have been in the industry for 15 plus years, so we knew all the pain points. Um, a lot of it started when we were building. We had several folks that were beta testers and using the system and getting their feedback live. Um, when we launched, though, I mean, we had definitely one of the best forecasting and type curve tools, and we had enough economic functionality to get people really interested in it. Um, and so our fourth client was Pioneer. Uh, so when we launched in May 2020, which was super thrilling, um, you know, we were we were going and going and then we got really lucky. We had a conversation with Pioneer and they said, guys, um, you have uh, two weeks to pr- we are, are literally about to sign a contract with the vendor right now. I'm not going to name the vendor, but they've been working for 52 weeks and we, they said, you got two weeks. Show us what you got. So we um, we were doing onboardings 8 a.m. every morning. We were onboarding like 10, 15 people. They said, we don't like this button here. And the developer were like, guys, develop, boom, push it. Hot fix, front end, new buttons there. We were pushing features in 30 minutes. We were on a demo. All of a sudden, we they said, I don't like this. I, I want to add this. Boom, we did that. And so, um, you know. We, we went ahead and, and started to, to push and show everybody how serious we were about making changes and being a great partner from an industry perspective, because everybody was used to the stagnation and, oh, it's going to take us 12 months to develop this feature, right? So we needed to change that attitude and show people that we we're here to execute and we we're incredibly hungry. So that's kind of how we were able to. I had some great relationships in the oil and gas space because I, I've known quite a number of companies and uh, P sponsors and Armand knows quite a number of upstream players as well. So we're able to, to show our, our folks value, you know, what we're doing in the process and then be able to continuously add new features for them to um, to add on to the software and show them that, hey, this is a living, breathing tool. And, and after a while, people now got used to that. And, and the other piece that saved us, because early on we we're missing a lot of functionality. And so it was highly stressful. Um, the other piece that we focused on was customer success and customer support. And so that's been a, one of the pillars of our success, having the best product with quick updates. And then the other one is customer support. And so I think it was client number 10. It would been it was been a stressful week for me. I was on the golf course because uh, I had been working 90 hours and I, was, I just needed a break. And I've been working the deal and showing them all this stuff. And they're pointing out some features we're missing. I'm like, yeah, but I was on the call with him at midnight. 
on Friday and Saturday going through some forecasts and type of, and uh, I get a call on the golf course. I'm like, and, and they say, hey, Jeremy, he's like, you're missing a lot of functionality. I'm like, shit, this is not going to be good. And so he's like, but you really showed us that you really care and you've been on the phone. And so we're going to make the investment in you guys because we see this product uh, changing and evolving and really appreciate it. So um, that's when I knew we have something special here. And so people in the industry saw we really cared and tried a lot. And so I think that completely helped us kind of take the software to that next level because um, there's a lot of companies that stalled out with very limited number of clients. And I think we're probably, I think one of the few companies that were able to push to 150 clients in 18 months. I don't know if any other, very many other startups that ever went from zero to 150 in, in that period of time. So, um, and and a lot of that was just due to those two simple pillars of, of what we thought um, would be a successful company. Yeah, I mean, I can attest to that. And I, I want to say publicly, I, I feel like that is not identified enough uh, or, or utilized by service providers and specifically in the software space often enough, especially once they grow to kind of critical capacity. Like your guys' customer experience and customer success was unfathomed or unmatched, um, which was incredible. And I know Mike has had a similar experience um, where, yeah, 10 o'clock at night on a Sunday for whatever reason. I mean, we didn't want to be working, right? But we would like shoot you guys a note and then suddenly you would appear on a Zoom call in front of us and be like, hey, how can I help? Uh, you know, which was just a hustle on you guys. So hats off to you there. And I mean, it's no mystery that you know, you've it, been it, successful. It's, so. uh, it's a double-edged sword though, because now I'll submit a ticket or want to talk to you guys. And mm -hmm. if I have to wait more than 10 minutes, I'm annoyed. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> and you don't get your every time now, right? Like, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but there's I a lot remember, of people there. Remember Mark when I told remember when you were we were talking the first time and I said I pro I guarantee you we have the best customer support ever and you're like yeah I don't I'm not sure about that or whatever you you had some question about I have to go back to the text messages there and yeah, I was like I guarantee you prove it, it. <laughs> challenge accepted yeah um so have you balanced uh kind of this innovating um versus capital expenditure and kind of focusing, how, how, do you, how do you guys prioritize what to focus on? That's probably an easier way to ask that question. Such a great question. Um, it's, there's so much to attack. We see such an amazing yeah. market opportunity in a lot of different areas. So we actually just went through our 2023 exercise um, and it, it really comes down to taking time to talk to the software dev team because you know our, our vision is so big and we want to grow so quickly. Um, we have to talk to get everybody in a room. We have a brainstorming session. We've iterated probably six, seven times to make sure we're not overextending ourselves because at the at the end of the day, we want to have the best core platform, right? We, we're here to take out all the legacy tools are related to reserves and economics platform. That's where we started. That's what we continue to do. Yeah. And, and for the non-oil and gas assets, for the non-oil and gas listeners, just real quick, right? It's predicting how much oil is going to come out of the ground. Uh, and then valuing that and determining how much it's worth at its core, exactly. right? Your guys' software helps people do that very efficiently. Exactly. And so that's the core of the platform, and we're going to continue adding functionality there, expanding, and continuing to uh, have a tremendous amount of resources allocated to that uh, while layering on our GHG and, and scheduling capabilities. 
that's a huge amount of work to do right now as it currently sits. There's plenty of functionality like within the forecasting. We want to continue innovating there. We've released the proximity tool and other innovative solutions that no one else in industry is doing um, to make sure that it's easily auditable and it's scalable for across the company. Um, and then we're going to continue adding some more uh, and then, you know, a few other things around potentially on the accounting side um, over time. But this is kind of where we've seen it as our core. And then we've got some other bigger vision um, Mike alluded to, you know, looking at different marketplaces and how we can leverage what we're doing on Carlin or a few other areas. But for the moment, we have so much to do. We want to keep our team focused. So. It's challenging. We spend a tremendous amount of time being focused and we don't want to ever lose what got us to the success, which was a hyper focus around having the best product for the reserves and economics piece and then kind of slowly expanding from there. So we, we do have that focus and we're not going to veer away from it because we've seen companies just start layer caking on top too many product lines. And and while it sounds, you know, attractive, it doesn't deliver the best long term results for for the company. And so that's kind of how we see it. And so once we get to a certain point from a resource perspective and we have enough capacity, then we start adding more on top of it as long as the team feels good about being able to to continue to um, develop at the core and not distract them. So it's a balancing act. I want, of course, as much as possible and the dev team wants, you know, pushes back. And so it's a great amount. You have to have that right friction to get to that right answer where there's plenty of work to do, but also um, and great amount of features, but making sure that no one's too overextended from a personal work perspective. So, Jeremy, you're a finance guy, and this is not necessarily a finance company. It's still a business. And I'm curious, like we've talked about how you decide on deploying how much capital, where you deploy it. And as a software company, a lot of capital is tied up in people and having really good people. But can you talk about how a finance guy is going to find a good software programmer and how many of them you actually need to get something done? Like basically going out of your element into something else and just making a successful company like you have. So, uh, you know, we were dramatically wrong on our initial time build. I'll just put it like that. (laughs) Rip it up, throw it out. It was we were way off there. We have a much better understanding now um, in terms. I mean, we have a tremendous amount of developers on our platform, over 60 software developers and data scientists grinding. Um, in terms of, you know, early on time, we definitely under uh, under hired and uh, had a tremendous amount of work we needed to accomplish. But things that we thought, you know, I'll give you a good example, our Aries conversion going from Aries to Common Curve and Common Curve back. Our mom thought maybe we could get this done in a, a few months. I mean, we're still trying to perfect it. And this we're talking years into it. You know, there's always some weird stuff that comes up that you don't anticipate. So like the conversion is just a great example of that. Um, there's always a lot of nuance to it, but we've gotten better uh, in terms of, you know, scoping documentation. So all of that. And then in terms of how we allocate, you know, our capital and how we are investing our dollars in new features and new systems, you know, we're looking constantly at our runway. When do we want to be free cash flow neutral and free cash flow positive? Kind of like you would do at an oil and gas company, right? At, at what point can you get to certain points with the different burns that you have in place? So I'm constantly looking at that. And then I press the team and optimize. So we we hired dramatically over the past nine months, um, probably 60 to 90 people. I, I have lost track. But um, 
But then it's kind of more of like, okay, we've got this huge amount of people. They're very talented folks and making sure everybody's put in the right seat in order to maximize their capabilities, right? Because a lot of times, so maybe somebody's really great on front end or back end, or maybe somebody's really good on account management versus selling. So you want to optimize your people. So there's this ramp, the optimization of putting the right people in the right spots and making sure the system and processes are working. And then you reevaluate when do you want to add more people and um, you have that velocity that's understood. So as you add more people, you have this consistent workflow that an expectation that you'll get out of folks. So um, every software developer is different from a skill set, though. You know, some some developers are just, you know, it's just another level. Uh, so we do a lot of testing to make sure we get the right people in in our spots and that meet our standards from a, a quality and development perspective. And then we spend a lot of time also on on metrics for, you know, uh, when we're hiring on, you know, sales side and, and other areas. We're a pretty metrics driven company and we're continuously trying to find ways to improve and measure things that we haven't been able to measure before. Awesome. I mean, how many people are you guys at now? I, mean, I know you just get a big range of 60, 90 that you've added, but approximately. Uh, from like two, two, two dudes with a, yeah, a, a vision and then, yeah, working out of basically like an incubator in a house, right? That you guys were renting. Yep. And then, yep. yeah, up to 100, almost 150 people right now. Yeah, that's awesome. Man, wow. you've got the super, the podcast or folks listening won't know this, but yeah, you got the super slick office in the background. Now, no, I'm just kidding. That looks like a virtual office, but yeah, it's a it's a virtual <laughs> office. We do have an office, and if you guys come to Houston, I'll make you espresso. Uh, and uh, from the espresso machine, I get the coffee beans from downstairs at the Coco's uh, Crepes place. So they have nice. great, great coffee beans. I'll make you some great espresso. I'll make it for all the people that want to see them in the office. And I got a Traeger grill, so I'm gonna do a Scotch and steak. You got to come down to Houston for Scotch and steak evening. And we'll do aged steaks and get some great scotch. Like I, we're, I got the whole boondoggle set up at the office, so we're gonna get get some grilling going, and it's the perfect time in Houston. So I'm Maybe actually gonna be there next week, so I might I might take you up on that. So okay, <laughs> cool. I, I do have one more question before we move to the broader energy industry stuff. Uh, I mean, I know how hard you and your team worked, especially at the beginning, and I know you said that your wife was supportive. How did you balance managing the business and the family at the same time? And if you want to talk about Armand's experience too, like he probably has the same issue. Like, yeah, how'd you do it? I don't think there's a lot of balancing at uh, on t- at the early times. It's it's this laser focus of you know early time was seven days a week, uh, constantly hitting hitting the go button and grinding through the software development. It's gotten slowly better when you have more people to allocate resources to and um, what I've tried to do from a family. So Armand's, Armand doesn't have any kiddos, uh, so it's a little bit different. He can he can decompress at times. There's no decompression uh, from my end and I have two more coming on uh, Tuesday. So, um, so it's gonna be an absolute crazy house, but I try to take Saturdays uh, with, as a family day, like I'm, I'm going to spend time with the kiddos and take them out and make that the day. 
and uh, and try to carve out time in the evenings for for bedtime and books uh, and stories to do that each night. So that's kind of how I've done it. It's not the most optimal thing, but early on in the early stage, you really it's it's a sacrifice that you have to make to to build something special. It takes a tremendous amount of energy, and if anybody tells anyone differently, it, it just it's either how quickly do you want to go? Do you want to scale fast or you can definitely scale slowly over time, but there's different trade-offs for that. And um, I've been fortunate that we've been able to to balance it a little bit, uh, but it's it's definitely earlier on was um, it was not the easiest. Yeah, no, no one's going to work hard unless you do, right? Mm-hmm. Excellent. Well, I, I wanted to get your view on kind of the broader energy industry. So I see right now, you know, there's definitely going to be some consolidation. Um, but with consolidation, what we've seen actually is more startups end up coming up as well. So I think there'll be consolidation. But people continuous. get bought and then they have startup capital to go and start their own thing. <laughs> it, it's very great. Uh, it was funny. One company sold and then two more companies became clients of Combo Curve after that. It was it was just <laughs> so, I, I, you know, there may be consolidation, but I don't think that the overall number of oil and gas companies necessarily going to dramatically change. Um, over time, like there'll be some some additional one, but I think there's a lot of there's a lot of running room for small EMP companies to make distributions. There's going to be an opportunity for outsized risk adjusted returns over these next like five to ten years, where we are from an energy uh, consumption perspective. So I I really see a very bullish oil and gas market, you know, for the foreseeable future. Um, I think it will create some innovation that's necessary on the energy side of things um, to, you know, to be more efficient. And people, of course, politicize the oil and gas industry and demonize it on, you know, on on a certain scale. Um, But our industry delivers a tremendous amount of value to society. And I think when people see the blackouts, they realize, well, hey, we don't have consistent energy generation. So it requires either oil and gas or other alternative forms uh, like nuclear and others that uh, can uh, can help bridge the gap between you know from from a um, from a clean energy perspective because it's going to take all energy sources. Uh, but uh, you know I'm sure there's going to be consolidation uh, for efficiency over time, but I don't see any dramatic changes necessarily. I, I continue to see a lot of new startups uh, pop up, and uh, a lot of people are just uh, capital is is more limited. Um, of course, from a lending perspective, uh, but I, I do believe that family offices will start seeing the opportunity that may not have uh, ESG limits and start deploying their capital there, where they see the uh, the opportunity set to make you know, you know really attractive risk-adjusted returns. So that that could create some great opportunities for the private companies as well. That's an interesting thought. ESG limits versus if you're a public company and you have certain requirements or covenants to meet. Yeah. Um, do, do you think there's a chance that, I guess, elaborate on that? Do you think there's a chance that there'll be a, a big delimiter or the, the burden of ESG reporting requirements and public EMPs could be extremely onerous? It may, but I don't think it's something that would be that. I mean, there may uh, the disclosures may be required that are significant, but 
you know, technology. And I think the way that oil and gas companies are already a lot of the larger ones are measuring what they emit already just to requires a, cons- a consolidation of the data set right into unified spot and being able to make decisions on that in order to inform better long term strategy around, you know, some net zero promises that have been made. So I, I think a lot of the larger companies are, are getting there and there are, you know, we are working with those that are actively you know, monitoring and managing that information and trying to make the best decisions. So I, I think it's good for the companies themselves to know how they can be more efficient from an ESG perspective. And I think it's something that's important for our industry to be able to say, hey, we're doing our part to be better. And I think we do a fantastic part. Uh, in fact, I, I don't think we do a great job of marketing what we do from an ESG perspective, because I think a lot more is done in our space than potentially a lot of other spaces. We just don't do that great of a job. And and so, you know, we may need to hire a marketing person for the oil and gas space that does a little bit better job of, of you know, going ahead and saying, here's why we're so good. Here's what we're doing. Um, and here's why we're so important to the world at this point in time. Um, so, you know, overall, I, I think it's I don't think it's anything that we can't handle. And I think we all have the skill sets in order to manage through that. On your guys' scheduling tool, I am curious on your view of remaining inventory in the U.S. Um, obviously, you'll have a business for the rest of your career, at least, and so you know you guys can build yourself to someone else because people will need to forecast oil and gas wells as long as we have oil and gas wells. Um, but when I look at inventory of future shale development, I'm probably more bearish than most people on remaining number of sticks on the map left to drill. Do you guys have a view of kind of, and it, it could be totally yours and alone and not combo curves, but yeah, thinking about building out the scheduling tool, that's certainly a piece of it, right? Totally. I don't have, I haven't looked at a lot of the inventory in, in a tremendous amount of detail, but I think more inventory comes up as when you have strong prices like we do in oil and gas, right? So there may be, you know, the tier one acreage may start being drilled up and 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 exhausted over the next five to 10 years, but tier two, tier three, tier four acreage will continue to open up. And so you'll see that, you know, as the price, the prices will dictate what, how, what economics look like. And that in turn will um, lead to capital being deployed in maybe less efficient areas. So I think there's still plenty of oil and gas to be had as, as a function of what do the economics look like at each price deck in order to go ahead and extract that next barrel of oil and gas from the well. So I, I think supply demand generally takes care of that, right, uh, and in some fashion or form. And then, you know, one thing that's been surprising is, you know, let's just say we move to hydrogen um, and some of that may be extracted from, I'm assuming, natural gas and other areas for transportation, which may balance out some of that piece. But um, there is also a lot of area that hasn't necessarily been tested from a technology side. You know, we've we know of different zones, you know, in um, when you look at South Texas, right, the, is it the Dorado that EOG kind of listed as their latest and greatest uh, for the natural gas? So I, I think there's generally other areas that continue to um, uh, to to go ahead and pop up um, that are pretty large scale that continue to give us a long runway uh, from an energy perspective. Uh, and, and then if you look at the shale revolution, that really has transformed our energy independence. We have a re- really brilliant workforce in the U.S. And so 
I think that with the creative minds that we have, we'll always be able to find a way to to get more oil and gas at you know the price tech and and in general, the pricing will dictate where where those locations may and may not be economically viable. Yeah, and like historically, um, especially with the shale boom, like we started with the Haynesville and the Bach, and then all of a sudden the DJ became a hot play, and then the Delaware, and uh, who knows what's going to pop up next. Um, but one interesting point that you mentioned a little bit earlier, Jeremy, is that access to capital these days is a little more difficult than it used to be. But, uh, and I'd love maybe your opinion on it, a lot of investors are putting ESG requirements on companies before they invest. It almost seems like the more responsible, maybe net zero oil and gas companies like Civitas, they are claiming they're a net zero producer, for example. Um, it seems like they'll be rewarded with a bigger investor base where they might be able to even continue to innovate um, mm-hmm. with that extra capital. What do you think about that? I totally agree. If, you, if you're able to get to net zero and uh, expand the investor base and they buy into that, I, I definitely think you're going to open yourself up to a broader base because uh, a lot of the large investment funds like Blackstone and BlackRock have that high on their priority list. And it's one of the boxes that they need to check from an investment perspective in order to go ahead and deploy capital. Um, You know, the net zero commitments uh, that are being made and the ones that are most, uh, um, you know, environmentally friendly will definitely have access to lower cost of capital. So I think that creates additional opportunities when you have access to cheaper capital because you're a top tier uh, uh, oil and gas operator with a, a low environmental impact. So I totally see that as an opportunity set. Um, it is interesting. Uh, and and you'll see uh, over time that M&A activity for higher ESG impact um, uh, oil and gas wells will trade at a discount to those that have less of an impact from a pro forma basis, because that's something that they'll have to take into account when purchasing assets. Awesome. What are uh, what are some of your guys' biggest challenges, and do you, do you think they relate or are correlated to the industries? That's a good question. I say the biggest challenge kind of goes back to the prioritization. Is is it's not just on a um, you know a platform functionality that we want to deploy. It's honestly on a uh, an individual level. You know, we get pulled in a lot of different directions, and I'd say that's the biggest thing I see that. All of us can improve upon um, that when we're working is we get to, you know, you got to elevate yourself each week and say, here are the one or two or three priorities I need to tackle this week. These are the must must haves. And then everything else you got to put to the side so you can be laser focused on that. And that's one of the things that we are striving to improve upon is putting in uh, like people need frameworks to be able to prioritize things. And so we've been evaluating different ways to help our team do that because the velocity of features that come in every single week, we get in probably 200 to 500 feature requests. And this is coming in a high velocity. I mean, we got, you know, 230, 240 clients now. And so it's fast, it's hot and heavy, right? And so being able to summarize and synthesize what our action items are is is not an easy task. And, you know, you can throw people at a problem, but at the end of the day, you have to have a good process and a good framework in order to do that. So that's one of the biggest challenges I think every startup has. And 
even every company has in general because you start being larger and have some more meetings during the day. And I've started just removing meetings uh, that I don't think I'll be value add at. So um, it's really learning how to do that and being able to elevate yourself to a strategic level to accomplish what you need to each week. There's a lot of companies that could benefit from that mindset of, yeah, how do we prioritize? And uh, uh, yeah, 200 to 500 feature requests per, you said what, per, per week? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'll I bet, bet you about half of those are mine. <laughs> <laughs> and we love them, and we love them. Keep them coming. I bet Aries yeah, we just said it, it, it just uh, 1995. <laughs> Yeah, the same one, the same. They only get one request. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, but it's uh, they just don't yeah. do it. Yeah, no, we, we just have to. But we've got a good system that we've been continuing to enhance, but it's still a challenge and it's a constant struggle always to make sure that you're putting the right things in place from from that standpoint. Awesome. Jeremy, this has been great. Let's uh, I think we'll pivot to the kind of questions that we ask most of our guests. So uh, what's one thing that keeps you up at night? or concerns you about the energy industry? Could be oil and gas, could be the broader industry, could be software. I guess you guys are software industry too, right? <laughs> More on the on the industry side of things, it's just uh, the, the biggest thing that scares me is the politics involved with the oil and gas space, uh, because, you know, we, we have people at the highest level of politics pushing, you know, saying we need to produce more and do more things, yet the actions of what they do don't allow us to do that as well. And so, it's uh it's a little disconcerting at times and it's definitely they they you know draining the strategic uh petroleum reserves uh to try to reduce pricing over a very critical time you know period of time from an election perspective as well um is is it's definitely something that always concerns me it's uh, energy should be something that shouldn't be involved from a politics perspective there's nothing you know, the government can do. The government's never been able to avoid recessions or have been really part of the reason why the economy has been so fantastic, right? It's That's a function of uh, broader trends that are not controlled by the government. And I think if they recognize that, um, we would be in much better shape. But overall, that creates the biggest risk for the industry that I see kind of currently. But overall, I think people are starting to see how important oil and gas is. So I think they're coming around to that, with, especially with the war uh, that's been going on. And, um, and so uh, having that energy independence hopefully makes people appreciate what we're doing here in the U.S. That's fantastic. Um, what advice do you have for young professionals in the energy industry? I mean, I think we have a, an amazing opportunity and an amazing skill set. And, uh, you know, I think what I saw last and, and Mike probably and, and Mark, you may know best, think the smallest crop of petroleum engineers to date has been coming out of university at this point in time. Uh, I think it was like 10 or 20 percent of the group from five years ago. And, you know, I think that the skill set that, you know, I wish I was smart enough to be a reservoir engineer and petroleum engineer, but I, I wasn't. I could do some basic math. So this is I kind of leveled off at the discounted cash flows and finance side of things versus doing the ARPS equation. So I think the petroleum engineering, reservoir engineering degrees are so valuable. It gives you such a great baseline. And I think people get hung up on they think this industry is contracting. But I'm so, you know, what I'm excited about is where we're going. Companies are becoming 
not just oil and gas companies, but energy companies, right? We're getting into geothermal, we're getting into solar, we're getting into wind, uh, we're getting into a different types of projects for like hydrogen perspective, you know, like Oxy's doing carbon capture, Talus is doing CC, you know, carbon capture uh, injections. Like we have an incredible skill set. We're going to be part of this energy transition. And in fact, we're going to lead the energy transition and reservoir engineering skill set is a great skill to have. And of course, chemical engineering, Mike, as well, to have <laughs> in order to, to you know, to make sure that your your skill sets are in demand long past anything else. And so I think people fail to see that. And, and I think that is um, they should know that. I think if you're going to get a reservoir engineering degree, go all in. It's it's fantastic. And it's going to be a very valuable skill set 50 years down the road. I like that dual purpose recommendation. Yeah. Get, get excited about energy, go get a reservoir engineering degree, and then become our customer. Yeah. <laughs> that too. And, and Mark, don't feel left out. Mechanical engineers are also valuable. Uh, licensed in petroleum. So, you know, yeah. All right. <laughs> cool. Well, leave us on a leave us on a positive note, Jeremy. And actually, I might give Mike, since this is your first time hosting with us too, uh, I want to give Mike a chance to answer this question first. Uh, and then, Jeremy, I want you to close us out. But yeah. Where, where do you see all this going in the next 5, 10, 20 years? I mean, energy isn't going away, clearly. And then you can expand that statement to say that oil and gas isn't going away. But I think how we do oil and gas is going to change. And I think we're on the cusp of an incredible opportunity to innovate and produce oil and gas more responsibly while developing technology that, one, allows you to produce it more uh, responsibly with like carbon sequestration and implementing that on a broader scale and two tapping into different sources of energy whether it's leaning more on um, solar or having more nuclear development or whatever your choice is so the positive note is um, energy is only going to get more important and there are going to be fun innovative ways to to create it Love it. Thanks, Mike. How about you, Jeremy? I totally agree. I'm kind of going off of what I was talking about a little earlier. You know, we're generating a tremendous amount of free cash flow as an oil and gas sector right now. And so we're going to take some of that cash flow and redeploy it in probably some newer technologies and some new areas to get into, because I think everybody knows they need to diversify their portfolio outside of just a straight up upstream investment. So you see that happening at Exxon, Chevron, Oxy and a bunch of other companies. So I'm very excited about everybody's. We're going to lead the charge in the energy transition. We have the best skill sets in order to extract carbon from the atmosphere and put it into the ground and do a lot of creative things from a technology perspective. Uh, we lead the way in a lot of ways on drilling, completion, like just the technology we've deployed over the past five to 10 years has been incredible. So I just see that as a great opportunity and we're gonna lead the way uh, in the long run from that, uh, from the energy transition piece. Awesome, couldn't leave it better than that. So Jeremy, thanks so much for your time. Mike, thanks for being a co-host. Really appreciate it, guys. Thank you. Thanks for having me, guys. 